Matthew chapter 18, chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's been a great uh, Lord's Day, I think, this first Lord's Day back of 2024, and we're picking up tonight on the second part. This is part two of what I entitled last week is Making Disciples, uh, something we started last Lord's Day evening uh, in this kind of break uh, between uh, uh, semesters here, a little quick look at discipleship. And it really came from um, what we discussed last Lord's Day morning, a sermon entitled, Do You Love Me? We took a look at Revelation chapter 2 and the church at Ephesus where the Lord had many commendations for them, uh, but he had one major thing against them, that's that they'd lost their first love. Uh, Their love for Christ had grown cold. And uh, uh, as I said, as we've been studying, speaking on various issues related to this over the last few months, I think a better question to talk to people or ask people when you're talking to them about the Lord in their life, uh, rather than do you believe in Jesus, I think a better question is tell me about your love for Christ. That's probably a better question. Do you love him? Uh, because I really think that's the determiner of where your heart really is towards him. Uh, and the priorities of your life flow from that love. And, and if you didn't have a chance to listen to last Sunday uh, night sermon, you, you might want to do that. Uh, or last uh, Sunday uh, morning sermon, you might want to do that. I think it was helpful. I think it was kind of challenging uh, as we stop and consider our love for Christ. I introduced a, a book that I told you about before, but a Puritan writer named Thomas Vincent. He wrote a book called The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. And in that book, he asked some very challenging questions. He makes some observations that are obviously uh, difficult to some extent. He says, look, there are some men who have no love for Christ, and those are the ones that are lost. And then he says, there's some men who have some love for Christ, uh, but not much. And that's really a terrible position to find yourself in if you claim to be a follower of Christ. You call yourself a Christian. And he says, the reality is few men have much love for Christ. And, And again, it's the love that you have for the Lord Jesus Christ that really affects every area of your life how you live, what you think about, what you speak about, how you spend your money, your time, your resources, uh, etc. It's all really bound up in your love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the great commandment, obviously, in the Scripture, the command of Christ is, you shall love the Lord your God with all, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, so I mentioned that knowing him, the things about him is not the same as loving him, and Christ demands our love from him for him, uh, uh, from us to him. Our, our love must be a preeminent, a supreme love. Uh, you have to have much love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, a preeminent, all-consuming, devoted love. And, and then if you do that, your life will demonstrate itself in acts of obedience. Uh, the Lord Jesus says in Luke uh, 6, verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So we worked our way through the book of uh, the second chapter of Revelation, chapter down to verse 5 of that book. And uh, Christ shows what you do when you find your love growing cold. Revelation 2, 5 says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, <clears throat> do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So you remember, you go back to where you were and what it was like when you were first saved. And when you were first in love with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you repent at that moment from your lack of love, your, the fact that your love is growing cold. And, and you go back and do those things you first did when you first came to Christ, the deeds uh, that you did at uh, first uh, when you fell in love and came to know the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the antidote, if you will, to the cure to lovelessness. Uh, you pursue him, right? You, re- you repent, you confess your sin, you repent, and, and then you change. <clears throat> and, and with great intentionality, you pursue him with all your might, all your being. You pursue him in prayer. You pursue him through his word. You pursue him in fellowship with other people, God's people. Now, I told you, sadly, the Ephesians never did that, and therefore they lost their influence. They didn't lose their salvation, uh, but, but they lost their ministry. Uh, Christ removed their lampstand, their light. Uh, they lost their influence, and historically that's true. Uh, I've told you that that area is pretty much, probably somewhere close to about 99% Muslim, with little to any influence for Christ. Uh, they were a, a church that really transformed the city at the beginning of their uh, ministry because they were so on, uh, on uh, fire for the person of Christ, but they lost their influence. Uh, they lost their influence because they lost their love. And, and from that morning sermon, we went to last 
Sunday night's sermon really under the same kind of heading, at least in my mind, uh, of your love for Christ. Because your love for Christ always demonstrates itself in acts of obedience. And that's what caused me to turn our attention to uh, Matthew 28 that I just read. Because if you truly love the person of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be obedient to him. And you'll be obedient to him specifically in the context there to make disciples. And so last Lord's Day evening, we worked our way through that text. We saw a disciple is really a, a learning believer. Uh, the process of making disciples goes beyond just uh, accumulating converts or leading to someone to faith in Christ. It really goes on to a lifetime of sanctification. So while we do want to reach people with the gospel, we also want to take people to the next step. We want to build them up and help them in their spiritual maturity. We want to teach them all things that Christ said, and we want to encourage them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. And I said, discipling is you coming alongside someone else and doing them good spiritually. That's a pretty basic definition. You coming alongside someone else to do them good spiritually. And it's the command that has been given to us by Christ that each and every person here in the fellowship or listening to me on the live stream, if you know Christ, you have a responsibility to personally be obedient to that command, to obediently fulfill that command. Because the same mission that Christ had, the same mission the Father had to seek and save the lost for the glory of the Father and for man's good, and to see them grow in Christ's likeness, that's our mission. And the more that we're obedient to the command of Christ to make disciples or to be in the discipling process with others, then the more we'll grow in our own Christ likeness because that's why he came. So we worked our way through that text in Matthew 28. We saw the command again, make disciples. It's only given once, just like I told you, be fruitful and multiply is only given once because it's just a natural part of life. You don't have to repeat that. Life produces life. It's just natural. If you're genuinely a follower, genuinely someone who was converted and knows the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, if Christ has touched your life somehow, by the mercies of God, if Christ is, uh, God has changed you, made you a new creation in Christ, your sin's forgiven, you're saved, redeemed, and naturally you're going to have a love for others and a love for Christ. Uh, a love for others because the love of Christ is now in you, and again, you want to be obedient. So you're in the process of making disciples. There are three participles. Uh, uh, the, the imperative was make disciples. The three participles that were part of that were going, baptizing, and teaching. That's how disciples are made. And I told you, go really probably has more of the proper rendering of having gone. It's really an assumption that you've already done this. It's just a natural part of your life. You're obedient to reach others for Christ. And while baptism doesn't save, that's the second uh, one, uh, going baptizing, uh, baptism doesn't save, it really is an outward demonstration of an inward commitment to Christ. It really is the first act of obedience for a believer. It really marks whether or not one's uh, profession of faith is genuine. Because, again, to identify with the person of Jesus Christ, especially in the context of the New Testament, uh, here early on, uh, 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 when when Christ has given that command, it really is going to be costly. To identify with someone whom the Roman government has just declared to be a criminal and executed him, and the the, uh, religious leaders of Israel have just labeled him a blasphemer, uh, for you to identify him publicly is going to cost you something. And if a person was unwilling to be baptized publicly, then that meant that the genuineness of the profession of their faith really would be called into question. So it's going, baptizing, and then it's teaching. It just means instruct, uh, specifically in the area of doctrine. So that you teach them what Christ commanded, and, and then you command them to, again, be obedient to what Christ taught. Because a true disciple has an obedient heart. He wants to please the Lord at all times and all things. So again, the command of Christ is to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, unfortunately, we live in a time in a church where a lot of people in the church have uh, um, completely lost sight of or are completely disobedient to uh, the great commission that Christ has given to his followers. It's always been God's desire to reach uh, the people of the world uh, with the truth. It's always been Christ's desire to reach uh, the people of the world with the truth. Therefore, it should be our desire to reach the people of the world with the truth, right? We want to seek to save the lost. We want to give them the truth of God's word, that God has a desire to save men, that God is for men, uh, that Christ is the hope of the nation. And again, the only good news in this world is found in the person of Jesus Christ. But again, there are a lot of people in the world that are disobedient, a lot of people in the church that are disobedient, and a lot of people, sadly, in the church that are just bogged down, bogged down with the trivial, preoccupied with themselves, preoccupied with the inane, uh, too busy uh, living comfortable, self-indulgent American lives, uh, self-loving lifestyles, rather than being all in, so to speak, and radically committed to the commands of Christ to make disciples of all the nations or all the peoples. 
And honestly, that preoccupation with self comes from a lack of love. It really comes from a lack of love, a lack of love for Christ and a lack of love for people who are in need uh, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and, and again, the importance of obedience, the importance of love for Christ to others really can't be overstated. Ne- neither can be the, uh, uh, the importance of being radically committed to the person of Jesus Christ. Steve Lawson uh, addresses this issue uh, as why so many people in, in the church are in essence wasting their lives. Uh, they're not loving others around them. They're not obedient to what Christ said they should be doing. They're living not for the glory of, uh, of, of the Lord and the glory of uh, God and the glory of Christ <clears throat> or, or for the salvation of others. They're just wasting their lives. He says this, to live for any other higher motivation than the glory of God and the glory of Christ is to completely misinvest your life in this world. And too many Christians are satisfied with living mediocre lives, unmotivated Christian lives, and lives that leave little to no impact upon this world or the next with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason is, he says, that the glory of God and the glory of Christ has never really ignited their soul. The glory of God has never inflamed their heart. This is what you and I so desperately need to have have in our lives, that God would fan the flames of our hearts and motivate us to make every sacrifice that would be incumbent upon us to live exclusively for the honor of our God in heaven. That's a great quote. Again, he's saying, look, living, living trivial lives is really a result of the lack of love we have for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or living trivial lives results of our love for Christ not being exactly where it should be. Uh, we have misplaced priorities. And because we have misplaced priorities, we have misplaced actions or <clears throat> misplaced affections. We love something more than we love Christ. And, and more certainly, that's not going to be pleasing to God. Uh, or more, most certainly, God's not going to bless people who have misplaced priorities and misplaced affections. Or are just too busy. I don't know if that's an excuse. Just too busy to be obedient, right? They just don't care. They're just living inane lives, silly lives, wasteful lives. But people who have much love for Christ, people who do have much love for Christ, they want to be pleasing to him in all aspects of their life. Because the glory of God and the glory of Christ has captivated their own heart. Therefore, they're not going to waste their life on the trivial. They're not going to waste their life on the fleeting passions of this world that is fading away, that is heading towards eternal judgment. They understand that it's reasonable and logical, as we've been talking about in the book of Romans for months and months, to give their lives away in obedience to service to Christ. Out of love, they submit themselves to the Savior. They submit themselves to the Savior, and they have a desire that others would come to know the great mercies and grace and love of God in their life that they have experienced the salvation of their own soul through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're concerned with other people. They're concerned with others who are not yet believers and they desire that they would come to Christ. And then they're concerned with others who have just come to faith in Christ, but they need to grow in their understanding of the Savior. So therefore, these kind of people are committed to the process of discipleship. Now, last week we turned our attention to what discipleship is. And again, a very basic definition is just discipling, is building a friendship with someone to do them spiritual good. It's just building a relationship with someone to do them spiritual good. And again, every single person who calls them a follower of Christ, calls himself a follower of Christ, every single person that says they're a Christian has to be, must be in a discipling relationship with somebody else. If you're younger in a faith, you should be with somebody who's a little bit older in the faith, a little bit further along that can help and encourage you. And if you're someone who's older in the faith, you should be with someone who's a little bit younger in the faith so you can bring them along. Encouraging them, challenging them, helping them, teaching them, coming alongside them, just walking with them in living life together. Uh, so that they would become, we would become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Because Christ-likeness is really the, uh, uh, the goal in, in, that needs to be in, in the process of discipleship and discipling relationships. And again, the whole thing starts out of a love. All right? It starts out of a love for Christ and a love for God, a love for those who Christ has uh, laid down his life for. And again, Christ models this for us the pattern of <clears throat> discipleship. He poured out his life to those first uh, uh, 12 men that came from various backgrounds and situations in life, and he did so with great intentionality. And again, it was life on life. Christ chose to incarnate himself. He chose to become flesh and blood. And I pointed out the fact that we all need desperately life on life, flesh and blood relationships from, to, to, to be discipled, to be, to be a discipler and to be discipled by somebody else properly. Uh, again, your pastor on the internet is not helpful, right? Your pastor on the internet, it's not sufficient. <clears throat> Just getting an information dump from a podcast <clears throat> is not the same as life-on-life discipling. 
We all need to be encouraged. We all need to be challenged. We all need to be corrected by someone that breathes, <clears throat> someone that we can reach out and touch, <clears throat> somebody that has a heartbeat, somebody that has dirty feet, uh, somebody that can walk the roads of life with us right alongside us, someone whom we can share our faith with and so they can see our struggles and we can see their struggles. And together we can see how desperate we all are for the grace of God in our life. And then we can continue to encourage each other towards Christ's likeness. And I said, if you're going to do that, then you can't just expect to happen. It has to be intentional. It has to be some forethought given to the whole process, the, the, the plan of discipling and discipling relationships. It, it has to be structured. But then also it needs to be spontaneous. There's a need for the spontaneous. There's a need for the structured. Uh, discipling, again, has to be intentional. Uh, there should be training and encouragement. There's a content that needs to be conveyed and applications that need to be made. Uh, again, with the focus always on the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to do somebody good on a spiritual level, then discipling has to be rooted in the Word of God. <clears throat> you need to know the Bible. You need to study the Bible together. Uh, it's good to have time for casual conversation in your relationship, but to help somebody on a spiritual level means that you desperately need to be Word-centered. You need to be Christ-focused. You need to be committed to loving each other, uh, to loving that other person and caring for that person's soul because, again, uh, these relationships are... are, are uh, uh, discipling is relational, relational, it's others-oriented. I referenced it this morning because Philippians 2 always stands out in my mind. It's one of the portions of Scripture I always read with marriage counseling, uh, when we're doing marriage counseling with young couples, because I just think it's one of the greatest portions of Scriptures for uh, application in all areas of life. Uh, on a husband and wife level, even if you've been married for a long time, especially if you've been married for a long time, in the relationships of those in your home with your with your children, the relationships with those in the bodies of Christ. And again, especially here in the context of, uh, of discipling. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Thank you for knowing that. Yeah, Also for the interests of others. That's Christ-likeness. Now, I haven't done this in a long time, so Sunday evening we can do it. We have a little theology test here. What do you think do nothing means in the Greek? Right? I mean, just stop and think about that. Do nothing from selfishness. Just think about your relationships with people you have a hard time with or people you have a good time with, not a hard time. But just do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Would that stop a few arguments maybe along the way? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but the interests for others? Again, that's Christ-likeness. Now our flesh wants what our flesh wants. Our flesh wants to rise up and elevate self, pander to self. But true Christ-like love gives preference to others. Christ-like love regards one another more important than oneself. Christ-likeness is self-sacrificially others-oriented, not self-oriented. Again, Christ left the courts of heaven, as it were, and he came physically to this earth to demonstrate his great love for us. He became physically present here in time, in our lives. Therefore, we're required to do the same thing in lives of other people, to be involved in the lives of others around us, to do them good spiritually, because again, that's Christ-like. Therefore, know that if you're going to disciple somebody, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to take time. <clears throat> it's going to take effort. It's not always going to be easy. You at times are going to have to set aside your desires, your priorities, your preferences for the well-being of someone else on a spiritual level because, again, that's exactly what Christ has done for us. So Christ self-sacrificially loved us. He loved us not on the basis of feelings, but he loved us on the basis of a determined act of his will. And we are called, again, this great task of making disciples of all the nations <clears throat> to doing good to those around us uh, on a spiritual level to that same kind of Christ-like love for them. Now, last week we went through the Matthew 28 passage, and then we turned over to 1 Corinthians 4, uh, where Paul lays out the marks of someone who's a b- biblical discipler and, and the kind of things that are needed for a biblical uh, relationship of discipling to take place person to person. And again, if you miss that, you might want to go back and just pick that up. Um, but, but every person in the room again, every person in the room again, if you're a follower of Christ, you must be in a discipling relationship with someone else. You, you should be coming along someone aside someone else to do them good on, on a spiritual level. If you're not, 
if you've never shared the gospel with anybody, if you've never helped anybody grow spiritually, and you call yourself a believer or a follower of Christ, if you've never done that, then you need to repent. Because you're disobedient to Christ's command to make disciples. Learning believers. And again, Christ modeled discipleship. He got involved with people. He loved them. He spent time with them. He led them <clears throat> to spiritual truth. Because again, life produces life. And if the life of Christ is genuinely in you, then out of obedience and a love for Christ, you'll be actively involved in the lives of others to do them good spiritually. You'll be growing in your faith. You'll be growing in your maturity. You'll be growing in your imitation of Christ. You will become someone who actually someone else can follow, someone who can help someone else on a, on a spiritual level. Because, again, the whole call of discipleship and the call to obedience in discipleship and the call to Christ-like love is really an upward call. <clears throat> pretty much it's time to stop being immature on a spiritual level. It's time to stop being spiritually infants and to grow up and be obedient and do good to other people just like Christ did for us. Now, if we're going to do that, if we're going to be obedient disciple makers and, and faithful to the task, then we're going to have to make sure we help those whom we disciple to understand that there's a cost to follow Christ. Because Jesus repeatedly warned that there was a cost to follow him and that cost would be high. He said that the way to follow him was narrow and, and few would find it. <clears throat> he said that those who truly find Christ <clears throat> would not um, live a life based on ease and comfort, but rather it would be a life of difficulty, a life of hardship, perhaps even death. So to begin to look at the cost of following Christ, just take your Bible and turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, <clears throat> but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. For what will a man be, what will, uh, uh, what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So it's a challenging portion of Scripture because it really confronts head on the uh, current form of cultural Christianity that's completely set on self. It confronts the mentality that says Christianity is all about you. You and everything you can get out of it. Come to Christ and all your needs are going to be met. Everything you want is going to happen in your life. Right? You, you come to Christ, uh, you heard it, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy. Uh, you can have all your problems solved. Uh, that, that's the modern lie that a lot of people pandered or pandered to and, and accept. A lot of people listen to that nonsense. But in, in this portion of Scripture, the Lord's going to confront that right on, head, head on, that kind of faulty thinking. He's going to say, no, look, in reality, there's a very high cost to follow me. A true disciple of Jesus Christ demands your unfeigned commitment, your, your obedience, your loyalty to him. Now, just prior to that, the Lord had just spoken to his disciples and told them uh, four things. He just told them that he's going to go to Jerusalem that he's going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and, and the scribes. He's going to be killed, and he's going to be raised on the third day. So four things that are non-negotiable in the life of Christ. These things are uh, uh, um, incapable uh, uh, of being altered in, in the life of Christ. These were absolutes that were going to happen to him. So it's within with that background, those four things that he just told uh, his disciples, that Christ talking about his own suffering uh, in order to carry out the will of God that's when this verse comes in, verse 24. Then Jesus said this to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So immediately after Jesus speaks about the fact that he, uh, by his Father's will, was going to suffer and die, that he had again fulfilled the Father's purposes, he, he turns to his disciples and calls them to follow him in absolute obedience, to do as he is now about to do. Now, this is not the first time that Christ has laid down these kind of standards of what it means to, to, to follow him. Uh, it really, it's a recurring theme through the Lord's ministry. It's something that he repeated over and over again, this issue of discipleship and what it really means to genuinely follow the person of Jesus Christ. Now, again, there are a lot of people who claim to follow Christ, 
but their claim isn't genuine. They don't meet the divine standard that Christ himself uh, puts forward. There are a lot of people who give intellectual consent to uh, the set of truth concerning the person of Jesus Christ. A lot of people who quote-unquote accepted Jesus and they go on with their own lives doing their own thing in charge of their own uh, destiny, so to speak. But the Lord is going to lay down the fact that, again, more than once in his ministry with these fellows, that following him is a commitment of your life in total, no matter what the price. No matter what the price may cost you, and it's going to cost you. A genuine follower of Christ is called to give up everything to follow him. So if we're talking about discipling somebody, we need to make sure they understand exactly what they're getting themselves into. Now again, this passage in Matthew 16 isn't the first time Jesus explained that to him. Just uh, look back a few pages to, to Matthew 7. You see it there. The Lord begins to expose those who claim that they have a relationship with him, that they're following him, but in reality their claim is false. You're familiar with the passage, Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So again, you got a certain group of individuals who claim they're following Christ, and Christ says, look, your, your claim's not genuine. And I think that's in part because they failed to uh, uh, f- follow the admonition or heed the admonition that just a few verses earlier that Christ had made there in chapter 7, back up in thir- verse 13. Chapter 7, verse 13 says, Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and fear those who find it. So again, the call to follow Christ is a very narrow way, a very difficult way. And the following Christ requires a complete, total rejection of self, a complete abandonment of self, a complete abandonment of self-effort, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. The, the call to follow Christ through the narrow gate leads to life. It's a difficult path, a path of conflict, a, ca- a path of persecution, suffering, tribulation. But Christ says you must enter through that narrow gate because it's the only gate that leads to life. It's the only way that leads to him. Now the broad way, on the other hand, that's the way of human achievement. There's no self-denial required on that path. You can keep all your sin. You can keep all your immoralities. You can keep your lack of repentance. You can even keep your lack of commitment to Christ because self remains in charge on the broad way. On this path, no one's going to persecute you. All your personal religious achievements are are going to be recognized. And he says, sadly, there are many people who are on this broad way, believing that they're on their way to heaven, but they're self-deceived because the reality is Christ says they're on the direct path that leads to eternal hell. To genuinely follow Christ requires much more than some kind of superficial commitment. It requires an intentional decision to enter through the narrow gate to forsake all, to cling to Christ alone. Go over just a a page or so to to chapter 8. And again, you see the same teaching there. Same truth. Uh, Matthew 8, verse uh, 19. says, or verse 19, Matthew 8, verse 19, a certain scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I don't know, maybe the scribe saw that this person, Jesus, was a great teacher. Maybe the greatest teacher, teacher ever heard, the greatest miracle worker he'd ever seen. So he wants to associate with Jesus. But, but Jesus knew what many churches today, unfortunately, fail to understand, that just because somebody makes a profession of faith to follow Christ, it doesn't necessarily reflect a genuineness to be a disciple of Christ. It doesn't necessarily reflect a genuine walk of discipleship. So without questioning the man's sincerity, just, Jesus just simply says a true disciple has some costs. And this man needs to consider it. Verse 20. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, look, superficial allegiance to Christ isn't acceptable. The cost of following me is going to be high. Again, as Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, in his humanity, he doesn't even have the basic comforts of life. He has no place to lay his head. 
Again, complete different reality from the modern prosperity gospel teachers that are out there saying that Jesus wants you to have everything, again, including health and wealth. I mean, just look at Christ. He doesn't have a place to lay his head. The very next verse, verse 21. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. Now, you have to understand in the context of the story, the man's father's not dead. That request, permit me to go first and bury my father, is really a common figure of speech. And it really refers to the son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father dies. And then the inheritance is distributed. So in essence, what the man is saying, he says he wants to follow Christ, um, not now but later. Somewhere down the road. Because he doesn't want to lose his inheritance. Therefore, what this man is really saying to Jesus is the focus of his life is not Jesus, but the focus of his life is himself, his personal well-being, his personal prosperity, not his service and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in the next verse, verse 22, Jesus said to him, follow me, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Again, sadly, both um, the scribe and this man who approached Jesus, they disappear. You don't ever hear from them again. Apparently, neither one wanted to discuss Christ's demands of discipleship because the cost of following Christ was too high. Look over in chapter 10 of the book of Matthew. Here the Lord Jesus is teaching. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For it came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Christ never wanted to give anybody a, a false sense of salvation. He never wanted to give anybody a false sense of security. He wants to make sure that everybody understands that there's a personal commitment to follow him, and that personal commitment that is going to cost you something. He wants to make sure the people are doing the hard work of self-evaluation. They're not being fooled into thinking that they're on their way to heaven when in reality they're on their way to eternal hell. A true follower of Christ chooses him over every other earthly relationship. Christ wants his followers to realize that if you commit yourself to him, there's going to be division. Perhaps in your own household. Division between parents and children. Division between uh, husbands and wives. If you follow him in totality completely, there may be problems in the most intimate relationships you have uh, on this earth. And the question is, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to pay that price? Is Christ worth everything to you, uh, even every relationship? Even your own life? Look at verse 38. He does not take his cross and follow after me. He's not worthy of me. He has found his life, shall lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, shall find it. Now, there's just a few examples, again, here in, in Matthew, of the high cost of following Christ. He repeats that command over and over, or repeats that teaching over and over to his followers that it's a high cost. You're going to have to forsake everything uh, to come after him. There's a tremendous cost, uh, again, in in following Christ. A tremendous sacrifice that has to be made. Pain, perhaps, that's involved. There may be, given uh, again, a possibility of severing of relationships. There's most certainly going to be hostility. There's going to be reproach. There's going to be rejection. To follow him, and and again, those who follow him, those who choose to follow him, uh, have to realize that. They have to recognize it. Men and women have to be willing and prepared to give up everything they have and everything they are in order to follow Christ. Again, uh, the Lord has said that repeatedly. Go over to chapter 16, our text here. He's repeated that in, in his ministry with these men. And so here he speaks to this issue specifically. Right? Just again on the heels of speaking about the fact of the necessity of his own death, he again is reminding these men of the truth. Reminding them again of the high cost to follow him. And most likely the reason that he's teaching them again is just like us. They and we both tend to forget and need to be reminded over and over again of the truth. And perhaps again it's something they haven't learned up to this point. 
Maybe they've got some kind of false concepts of really what it means to follow Christ because they perhaps had a false concept of what it was of the Messiah would be like when he came. So they got to have, again, they have to have false conceptions of what it means to, to follow him, and Christ wants to make it very clear. Again, a lot of people today have false concepts of what it means to follow Christ. A lot of people who claim to have an association with Christ, again, are just looking for what they can get out of it, what they can obtain, rather than focusing on what Christ is and what the entirety of the New Testament says, that if you follow Christ as a genuine follower of Christ, it's going to be costly. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So again, all these false conceptions of what it means to follow Christ, the real cost, it doesn't apply just to people out there. It applies to us. The, the Scripture is speaking to us. Us who are here tonight. Us who claim to be a follower of Christ. We have to understand who we're following and what the cost is to follow Him. And I really think the, the passage we're looking at tonight is kind of a wake-up call in advance. When, when a crisis moment comes, and it's coming, because all who desire to live Godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's getting darker out there. Persecution's coming. It's been promised. So it's a wake-up call in advance when the crisis moment comes in our own personal lives. We've come personally face-to-face with the real reality, the real cost in a fresh way, perhaps, of what it means to follow Christ. We need to be prepared. We need to have made a decision in advance. And ask when that persecution comes, am I going to continue to follow Christ or am I going to bail? Am I going to stop? Am I going to cling to the things of this life or am I going to cling to, to Christ and no other? Because if your life up to this moment hasn't been confronted with the genuine cost of following him, you wait, it will. So again, the passage before us, the, the Lord reminds us that those who wish to follow him have to count the cost, follow him, and follow him by way of the cross. So let's look here at the text. And again, the truths that are laid out here aren't hard to explain. They're not really hard to understand. They're just hard to put into practice. <laughs> right? And this is where we need to pray on a personal level that we'll be faithful. The Holy Spirit would make us doers of the word, not hearers of the word. Verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the principle... It is expanded again to gain Christ you have to give up everything if you're going to gain Christ you give up everything you must be willing to give up everything Christ said uh, uh, Jesus said to his disciples if anyone wishes to come after me again he's already said look I'm going to lay down my life I'm going to suffer and die and he's telling his followers they have to be willing be willing to do likewise they must be ready to suffer if called upon and even die and that's the ordinary response of everyone who's a true follower of Christ. Not just to these guys in this book, these original disciples, uh, but it's a call to all who follow Christ. It's the pattern of life to follow the Savior because that's the pattern that he uh, entered into when he came into this world. If you're going to follow him in life, you have to follow him in death. And again, the heart of biblical Christianity is self-denial. That's exactly what Christ came and did. He denied himself took up his cross for the benefit of others. If anyone wishes to come after me, if anybody has a desire, whomever they may be, they can come. All are welcomed. Christ invites all men to himself. He rejects no one who accepts the invitation. If anyone wishes to come after me, now what does that mean, to come after Christ? Well, it means you want to be a Christian. It means you want to be a Christian. It means you want to have your sin forgiven. You want to inherit eternal life. So if you want that, then you have to realize that it's going to cost you everything. A total commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, a total submission to His will. Now why is He, in the context, telling these men specifically, if anyone wishes to come after me? Well, because they're the foundation of the church, right? They're, they're the, 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 the apostles. They're the, the foundation of the church that Christ is building. They're, they're going to be the ones that go out with the main evangelistic thrust to the multitude of people who are called, uh, they call to follow Christ. So it's important for them to get a proper foundational understanding of the truth right at the beginning. That again, coming to Christ is not about you. Coming to Christ is not about self-exaltation. Coming to Christ is not about getting something for oneself. But coming to Christ, being a disciple of Christ, a genuine follower of Christ, means you deny yourself. You give up everything. 
give up everything you want to follow him in order to inherit eternal life. So again, the Lord is just kind of setting the facts straight here, if you will, at the beginning. If anyone comes, or if anyone wishes to come after me, then there are three elements that he said are crucial in a requirement to come after him. If anyone wishes to come after me, number one, let him deny himself. <clears throat> now, again, completely countercultural, completely counter to our natural tendency, because our natural tendency is we want to concentrate on ourselves, we want to affirm ourselves, we want to serve ourselves and our self-interest. But Christ says, look, if, you want to, if you're a genuine follower and you want to come after me, you need to renounce all self-interest. In fact, the, the verb tense of the word deny there could be, I deny utterly. You let him deny himself. It literally could be, I deny utterly. So Christ is saying that a true follower utterly denies or renounces self completely. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself. Now, the word deny doesn't only mean renounce oneself, but it really also goes a little bit further and really means disown self. Somebody has translated it like this. Let him refuse any association or compassion, or let him uh, refuse any association or companionship with himself. <laughs> it's a little odd when you think about it, but that's what's required. What does it mean? How do you do that? Well, it means you just abandon yourself. You, you abandon any desire to see yourself elevated. You abandon your desires for the favor of men. Right? We all want the affirmation of men. You just abandon that. You, you abandon any kind of seeking of human glory. You, you just, you'd abandon any kind of desire for power, prestige, uh, position, possessions, earnings. You abandon everything for the sake of Christ. Because your concern is Him, seeking Him and His kingdom first, His priorities first. You have nothing to do with yourself. You disown yourself. You dethrone self and you enthrone God. You, you lay aside your agenda, your rights, uh, 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 the pursuit of your ambitions, and instead all of your interests are placed on Him. His interests become your interests. His passions become your passions. You, you learn to deny yourself maybe even to those things that are legitimate in some cases for the sake of his kingdom because you seek first the kingdom of God and, and, and his righteousness, the person of Christ, his kingdom are preeminent in your life and thought. To deny yourself means you're okay with other people around you in the workplace or at school laughing at you, ridiculing you, mocking you, insulting you, neglecting you purposely because of your association with Christ. To deny yourself means that you patiently bear the reproach of Christ. You endure suffering for his sake. All for the sake of making him preeminent. All for the sake of making him central. That's one aspect of denying self. But to deny self or disown self also means this. It admits the fact that you have absolutely no capacity before God to save yourself. And you admit what God says to be about you is true. But there's nothing that good, nothing good that dwells in you, that, that is in your flesh. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me, says Paul, that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present, but the doing of good is not. So once you realize you can't please God in yourself, in your own flesh, you, you realize that you can't redeem yourself. Again, it's countercultural to the message not only found in the world, but sadly in the, uh, a message that's really kind of crept into the church. Uh, especially those in the church who belong to the self-esteem cult. It wants you to love yourself and elevate yourself and accept yourself. The truth is the more you love yourself, the more you accept yourself, the less likely you're going to see that you and yourself are in need of a Savior. So the first step to coming to Christ is to realize who you are before God and that, again, nothing good dwells in you. Because a man has to see who he truly is before God before he'll ever call out to God for mercy. Now think back in Matthew chapter 5, Christ said this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So poor there is utterly destitute, like a beggar crying out for, for mercy. Only those who are de absolutely desperate, uh, who, who realize who they are but before God, to see they're destitute. They see they have no resources in and of themselves. Those who understand the reality of who they are before holy God, that they're condemned and uh, damned uh, to hell, full of sin, alienated strangers, rebels, uh, under God's wrath and condemnation, in total spiritual poverty. 
It's only those who are returned to Christ. The self-righteous, self-sufficient man or woman who loves themselves, they never come to the Savior. Why should they? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, he should because I'm very lovely. That's kind of the mentality that's in, in a lot of the church. When you come to the absolute depravity of who you are, the lack, blessed are the poor in spirit, you realize you're absolutely destitute and you're desperate for the person of Christ. Those are the people who turn to Christ. Those who completely disown, deny themselves. Those who abandon self for the mercy that's found in the person of Jesus Christ from God because of his love. Those who who, who are desperate, who cast themselves away, come to Christ. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. So again, if you want to come to Christ, if you want eternity in heaven, if you want to be with the Savior, uh, then you completely do away with you. You do away with you, the natural sinful self. You do away with you being the center of your universe, you being the center of your interests. And you literally cast aside you, and from this point forward, you no longer live for you, but you live for Christ who died for you. It's exactly what Paul said in Galatians 2 and 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's all about the person of Christ. Secondly, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and then take up his cross. So what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean any of the things that a lot of uh, non-serious men say. What does it mean to take up your cross? Well, look, it has nothing to do with with you trying to get along with your mother-in-law. Okay, (laughs) That's not taking up your cross. right? Or dealing with your difficult next-door neighbor. That's not what he's talking about. In the context to whom these men Christ is speaking, they understood very clearly what it meant to take up your cross. They knew that take up your cross is a prelude to a person's crucifixion. They knew the call to take up your cross is a call to persecution, rejection, shame, suffering, reproach, even martyrdom. Now at the moment, they didn't know that Christ was going to be crucified. He just told them he was going to die. He was going to go to Jerusalem and die. hasn't told them here in the, in the context of Matthew, that he's going to be lifted up. He didn't tell them the means that he's going to die on a Roman cross. But again, in the context of the time, these men understand very clearly what it means to take up your cross. These men were very much <clears throat> aware of the fact that Rome punished uh, insurrection and rebellion by crucifixion. In fact, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who had led an insurrection against Rome, and, and a Roman general named Varus put down that rebellion and crucified Judas of Galilee along with 2,000 other Jews and he placed their crosses on the wayside along the road uh, to Galilee as an example of what insurrection costs. Some historians estimate perhaps 30,000 crucifixions took place by the Romans at the time of uh, Christ and his incarnation. So again to these men whom Jesus is speaking directly they had witnessed themselves men staggering under the weight uh, of carrying their cross a cross beams to the place where they're execution and then dying there in agony upon a Roman cross. And as you understand, uh, uh, crucifixion is most excruciatingly uh, painful death that any man could ever suffer. Nails driven through their hands and, 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 and feet and causing tremendous pain there in the points of the wounds. But even uh, as the weight of the body is hanging on those uh, nails, uh, hands and feet, they're trying to pull themselves or push themselves up, pull themselves up in their hand, push themselves on the feet so they can take a breath because hanging there, they're having difficulty breathing. And a person who dies by way of crucifixion dies a very slow death and eventually by suffocation because of exhaustion because they're no longer able to push themselves up on the nails in their feet or pull themselves up on the nails in their hand. So again, when Christ says, if anybody wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, they understood it's no metaphor. Christ is speaking in harsh, graphic, horrifying reality graphically harsh, horrifying, real language. Take up your cross literally meant something terrifyingly real to these men to whom Christ is making the command. Take up your cross literally means to be willing to die. Again, the most excruciatingly painful, torturous death imaginable for the sake of Christ. Again, back in chapter 10, verse 38, uh, Christ had said, he who does not take up his cross to follow me is not worthy of me. 
So again, it's an incredibly difficult statement. Christ is not making it, he never did, and make it easy for anyone to follow him. And the things that Christ says, I think, make it impossible for anyone to walk away from him indifferent. You have to make a choice. And the standard that Christ sets is so high that many men and women are and were unwilling to come to him. Because the standard that Christ sets to be a true follower, a true disciple, is much higher than our modern form of evangelistic evangelistic methodology where you merely, quote-unquote, accept Jesus. It's much more than just saying a prayer. It's much more than raising your hand, walking an aisle, etc., and so forth. Jesus says to disciples, if anybody wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. That means if you come to Christ, you're willing to suffer for him. Whatever indignations the, the world may cast your direction and your service of Christ. That means you come to an end of yourself. That, that you're willing and prepared to bear whatever affliction, whatever tribulation or trial there may be for the sake of Christ, even death. In fact, in Luke's version, Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he was saying, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So each and every day, each and every day, this is just a way of life. Uh, this is not a one-time event. This is the way of life for the follower of Christ. So again, the one who comes to Christ must love Christ more than he loves his own life. Christ must be seen as so precious to us that again, no amount of suffering, no amount of shame would ever be able to repent Pell us from him or separate us from him and his call upon our life. Faithful, genuine follower of Christ follows him into the worst of pain and suffering and persecution all the way even to the point of death because they understand the genuine call of Christ. And the genuine call of Christ separate, separates out the true from the false, or the wheat from the tares. Because again, those who are not genuinely committed to the person of Lord Jesus Christ won't pay that kind of high price. Again, a lot of people accept Jesus. A lot of people won't follow Christ by way of the cross. The third element, Christ says, is necessary for those who are true disciples. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and then take up his cross. Here it is, and follow me. What does that mean, to follow Christ? Follow me. It just means to imitate him. It means to follow his example, to walk as he walked, to act as he acted follow me is a present imperative. It means that if anyone wishes to come after me, let him keep on presently following me. Following me as the way of life. So you're going to come to Christ. You deny self. You admit that you're sinful. You're desperately in need of him as the Savior. And you live for him. You live for him. You deny self. You set aside uh, 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 self. And, and you abide with him. You pray to him. You walk with him. You walk in his power. You live as he lived. You walk as he walked. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. First John uh, 1, verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Follow me. It's a, it's a call to imitate Christ. First Corinthians 11, uh, 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Ephesians 5, 2, walk in love just as Christ also loves you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. To follow Christ means that we render to him perfect obedience. Again, 1 John 2 and 4, uh, the one who says I have come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. To follow Christ means you offer him, you render to him perfect obedience. Anyone who wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. That means that you follow him and you follow after his desires, his care, his agenda, his concerns. You follow Christ, you set your heart on his word his desires, his affections. Uh, again, you follow him no matter what the cost. So again, the, 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 the cost to follow Christ is high. And it only is going to cost you everything. That's it, everything. And you must be willing to give up everything to follow Christ. 
Now, again, sadly, in modern evangelicalism, again, I think in an effort to kind of win converts to Christianity, what we do is to try to persuade people of the benefits they will receive, again, if they merely, quote-unquote, accept Jesus. But Jesus never did that. He, he never spoke uh, uh, about the benefits. He's talked about the high cost of being one of his followers. Because the truth is there's no cheap grace in the evangelistic methodology of Jesus Christ. There's no cheap grace. If you want to come to Christ, if you want to follow, if you want to find eternal life, you have to do so in the shadow of the cross. If you want to join him in glory, then you first have to join him in the pain, suffering, the disgrace, the humiliation of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You have to be willing to die for him. So the question, I guess, would be, is the cost worth it? Is it a good investment, bad investment? Lord must have realized that somebody's going to ask that kind of question along the way because of what it says in the next verse, where he says it's absolutely worth it. In fact, it's the only logical thing to do, to give up everything for Christ, verse 25. And I think it's spoken somewhat in the form of a paradox. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now, what does that mean? It means that those who seek their own agenda first will never find the satisfaction that they're looking for. Those who live for this life, those who seek their own self-satisfaction, their own self-preservation, their own self-interests in this life will, in the end, lose their eternal soul. Therefore, the only logical thing to do, the only reasonable thing to do, the only sane thing to do is follow Christ. Because the truth is, this world is operated by the devil. And he offers to those who follow and worship him everything. He offers those who worship and follow him in this world, in this time, a a version of heaven here on the earth, uh, a worldly influence, worldly wealth, worldly possessions. He offers those who follow him security and ease and comfort, self-indulgence. He offers heaven on earth. Man, if you just come try this, if you just do this, your life is going to be so good. But the reality is it's all a lie. And the devil, while he may have offered heaven on earth, here and now, those who follow him most certainly are going to experience eternal hell, eternal hell thereafter. While Jesus requires absolute self-denial, he offers to those who follow him a life of hardship. Following him, however, leads to heaven because he's the only way to heaven. He's the only way to everlasting life. Following him means you save your soul. To not follow him means you lose your soul. And again, the only logical response to the difficulties and the obstacles that are put forward because Christ speaks truth, uh, the only logical response is to follow after him as hard as you can. You follow after him as hard as you can. Verse 26, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. You come to Christ on his terms. You be willing to lose your life for his cause in this world, and then you gain eternity. So again, in the context, Christ is looking at the disciples just after speaking about his own death uh, and saying to them, follow me. In essence, he's saying, look, I didn't come into this world to do what was good for me or easy for me. I came in to do what was into this world what is necessary for your salvation. I came to do my Father's will. I didn't come to play it safe. I didn't come to be secure. I came here not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Therefore, you do likewise if you want to follow me. You, you do likewise if you want to follow me and you want to serve me and you serve others in my namesake. Because if you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Because again, to follow Christ means that you're not looking out for your own personal interests, but you're actually looking out for the interests of others. You become caught up in something much bigger than yourself. You become caught up in the eternal plan and purposes of God as you follow passionately after the person of Jesus Christ. You serve him preeminently. You love him uh, with all of your being, and then you're obedient 
to the call to make disciples, make other learning believers. And you follow him and you tell them the truth of this is what it's going to cost. Verse 26 says, For what will a man be profit? What will a, a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So again, Christ is saying, look, it's much better to choose the way of suffering now in order to gain eternal glory because those who live life only for this life and fail to follow Christ are going to lose their soul. They're going to suffer eternal condemnation. For what will a man, what will, it, uh, uh, what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I, I think it's a bit of hyperbole. Uh, he, he trying, to make an, uh, trying to exaggerate to make a point here. But let's just play the game. What if? What, what if somehow you absolutely gained everything there is to gain in the world? You gained all the world's wealth, all the world's power, all the world's prestige, all the world's glory, all the world's influence. You had all the sweetness of, uh, of the delicacies of, that the world has to offer you. All the grandeur of high things. All the sensations, all the enjoyment, all the achievements, all the satisfactions. And in the end... You're going to die. Therefore, what will you have if you gain the whole world? The end, if you're going to die, the answer is you have nothing because dead men don't own anything. You have nothing. Even worse, those who have gained all the allurements of the world rather than the person of Jesus Christ, in the end, they're not only going to be physically dead, but they're going to be eternally dead. Therefore, there's no temporal gain that can ever make up for the loss of your soul. You can gain everything in the world and reject Christ, but it's a complete loss because you just forfeited your soul. And again, your soul is the most important thing you possess. The real you, there's no equivalent. No value can be placed on the eternal value of your soul. Christ came into this world out of the tremendous love that he has for a world of fallen men, and he did so and shed his blood for our souls uh, because our souls are important to him. And we foolishly treat our souls so lightly with so much indifference. For what will a man, what will man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Throw away your life in this world, you're going to be bankrupt forever. If you abandon your life, in this world and give your life to Christ, you'll be eternally rich forever. That's what he's saying. Those who do not deny themselves temporarily deny themselves eternally. And no temporal gain can compare to the loss of your soul. So again, if you want to follow Christ, cost is everything. You give up everything to follow him. Then Christ encourages his followers to invest in the future, invest in the hope, the reality of the fact that he's coming back, the certainty of his return, verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in glory uh, of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. He's simply saying, look, I'm coming back. There's a day of judgment coming, a day of accountability. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace, saved by what Christ has done. But what you do in this life, how you live your life, demonstrates the reality of the genuineness of your profession and your so-called love for the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. Live in light of the fact that I'm coming back. So what does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to be a true disciple? What is it, what's the cost? You give up everything. You, you give up everything to follow Christ. You abandon self, you take up your cross, and you follow him. And again, life in this world may not go well for you. You might be a beggar, you might be a martyr, a martyr. But in the end, if you follow eternal, if you follow the person of Jesus Christ, you'll gain eternal life. And again, in the end, there really is no choice to make except to pursue hard and fast and follow the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because only a fool would do otherwise. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for this look again here into your word and this uh, issue of discipling and what it costs to be a disciple, what it costs to be a true follower of uh, Christ. And it's a compellingly uh, different story than the world gives us. Uh, but it's a great story. The cost for us is everything because the cost for you is everything. You sent your 
dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to live and to die and to be our substitute. And you punished him so he wouldn't have to punish us. And you offer to us life. You offer us mercy versus judgment. If we would come and give up everything and follow hard after your son, our Savior. So help us to realize the cost in our own lives and help us to realize that cost and to share that truth with those around us who you are calling to yourself. Again, there's no cheap grace with Christ. But help us, Lord, to love you in such a fashion that when those uh, persecution comes our way on a personal level, we'll have great joy as we stand up for you and give faithful testimony uh, to the saving grace and mercy of God and Christ our Savior. Help us to be faithful to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.